Chapter four of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter four. The Lyrical Ballads with a Preface. Mr. Wordsworth's Earlier Poems. On Fancy and Imagination. The Investigation of the Distinction Important to the Fine Arts. I have wandered far from the object in view, but as I fancied to myself readers who would respect the feelings that had tempted me from the main road, so I dare calculate on not a few who will warmly sympathise with them. At present it will be sufficient for my purpose if I have proved that Mr. Southey's writings no more than my own furnish the original occasion to this fiction of a new school of poetry, and to the clamours against its supposed founders and proselytes. As little do I believe that Mr. Wordsworth's lyrical ballads were in themselves the cause, I speak exclusively of the two volumes so entitled. A careful and repeated examination of these confirms me in the belief that the omission of less than a hundred lines would have precluded nine-tenths of the criticism on this work. I hazard this declaration, however, on the supposition that the reader has taken it up, as he would have done any other collection of poems purporting to derive their subjects or interests from the incidents of domestic or ordinary life, intermingled with higher strains of meditation which the poet utters in his own person and character with the proviso that these poems were perused without knowledge of or reference to the author's peculiar opinions and that the reader had not had his attention previously directed to those peculiarities in that case as actually happened with mr southey's earlier works the lines and passages which might have offended the general taste would have been considered as mere inequalities and attributed to inattention not to perversity of judgment the men of business who had passed their lives chiefly in cities and who might therefore be expected to derive the highest pleasure from acute notices of men and manners conveyed in easy yet correct and pointed language and all those who reading but little poetry are most stimulated with that species of it which seems most distant from prose would probably have passed by the volumes altogether others more catholic in their taste and yet habituated to be most pleased when most excited would have contented themselves with deciding that the author had been successful in proportion to the elevation of his style and subject not a few perhaps might by the admiration of the lines written near tintern abbey on revisiting the wye those left upon a yew-tree seat the old cumberland beggar and ruth have been gradually led to peruse with kindred feeling the brothers the hartleap well and whatever other poems in that collection may be described as holding a middle place between those written in the highest and those in the humblest style as for instance between the tintern abbey and the thorn or simon lee should their taste submit to no further change and still remain unreconciled to the colloquial phrases or the imitations of them that are more or less scattered through the class last mentioned yet even from the small number of the latter they would have deemed them but an inconsiderable subtraction from the merit of the whole work or what is sometimes not unpleasing in the publication of a new writer as serving to ascertain the natural tendency and consequently the proper direction of the author's genius in the critical remarks therefore prefixed and annexed to the lyrical ballads i believe we may safely rest as the true origin of the unexampled opposition which mr wordsworth's writings have been since doomed to encounter the humbler passages in the poems themselves were dwelt on and cited to justify the rejection of the theory what in and for themselves would have been either forgotten or forgiven as imperfections or at least comparative failures provoked direct hostility when announced as intentional as the result of choice after full deliberation thus the poems admitted by all as excellent joined with those which had pleased the far greater number though they formed two-thirds of the whole work instead of being deemed as in all right they should have been even if we take for granted that the reader judged aright an atonement for the few exceptions 
gave wind and fuel to the animosity against both the poems and the poet in all perplexity there is a portion of fear which predisposes the mind to anger not able to deny that the author possessed both genius and a powerful intellect they felt very positive but yet were not quite certain that he might not be in the right and they themselves in the wrong an unquiet state of mind which seeks alleviation by quarrelling with the occasion of it and by wondering at the perverseness of the man who had written a long and argumentative essay to persuade them that fair is foul and foul is fair in other words that they had been all their lives admiring without judgment and were now about to censure without reason that this conjecture is not wide from the mark i am induced to believe from the noticeable fact which i can state on my own knowledge that the same general censure has been grounded by almost every different person on some different poem among those whose candour and judgment i estimate highly i distinctly remember six who expressed their objections to the lyrical ballads almost in the same words and altogether to the same purport at the same time admitting that several of the poems had given them great pleasure and strange as it might seem the composition which one cited as execrable another quoted as his favourite i am indeed convinced in my own mind that could the same experiment have been tried with these volumes as was made in the well-known story of the picture the result would have been the same the parts which had been covered by black spots on the one day would be found equally albo lapide notate on the succeeding however this may be it was assuredly hard and unjust to fix the attention on a few separate and insulated poems with as much aversion as if there had been so many plague spots on the whole work instead of passing them over in silence as so much blank paper or leaves of a bookseller's catalogue especially as no one pretended to have found in them any immorality or indelicacy and the poems therefore at the worst could only be regarded as so many light or inferior coins in a rouleau of gold not as so much alloy in a weight of bullion a friend whose talents i hold in the highest respect but whose judgment and strong sound sense i have had almost continued occasion to revere making the usual complaints to me concerning both the style and subjects of mr wordsworth's minor poems i admitted that there were some few of the tales and incidents in which i could not myself find a sufficient cause for their having been recorded in metre i mentioned alice fell as an instance nay replied my friend with more than usual quickness of manner i cannot agree with you there that i own does seem to me a remarkably pleasing poem in the lyrical ballads for my experience does not enable me to extend the remark equally unqualified to the two subsequent volumes i have heard at different times and from different individuals every single poem extolled and reprobated with the exception of those of loftier kind which as was before observed seemed to have won universal praise this fact of itself would have made me different in my censures had not a still stronger ground been furnished by the strange contrast of the heat and long continuance of the opposition with the nature of the fault stated as justifying it the seductive faults the dulcia vitia of cowley marine or darwin might reasonably be thought capable of corrupting the public judgment for half a century and require a twenty years war campaign after campaign in order to dethrone the usurper and re-establish the legitimate taste but that a downright simpleness under the affectation of simplicity prosaic words in feeble metre silly thoughts in childish phrases and a preference of mean degrading or at best trivial associations and characters should succeed in forming a school of imitators a company of almost religious admirers and this too among young men of ardent minds liberal education and not with academic laurels unbestowed and that this bare and bald counterfeit of poetry which is characterised as below criticism should for nearly twenty years have well-nigh engrossed criticism as the main if not the only but of review magazine pamphlet poem and paragraph this is indeed matter of wonder of yet greater is it that the contest should still continue as undecided as that between bacchus and the frogs in aristophanes when the former descended to the realms of the departed to bring back the spirit of old and genuine poesy c h brekekekex coax coax d al exulois auto coax 
Ardenga est al haikoax, oimazet ugar moi malei. Ch. Alla main ke craxum mestha, g. Oposon, hai pharynx, and hemon, candanae di himeris, brica kex, coex, quax. D. Tuto gar unicae sete. Ch. Ode men hema supantos. D. Ode men humeisce dai em odipote, ke craxomae gar, can me dei, di himeris. Eos en humon epicrateso to coax. Ch. Brickicacax, coax, coax. During the last year of my residence at Cambridge, 1794, I became acquainted with Mr. Wordsworth's first publication entitled Descriptive Sketches, and seldom, if ever, was the emergence of an original poetic genius above the literary horizon more evidently announced, in the form, style, and manner of the whole poem, and in the structure of the particular lines and periods, there is a harshness and acerbity connected and combined with words and images all aglow, which might recall those products of the vegetable world, where gorgeous blossoms rise out of a hard and thorny rind and shell, within which the rich fruit is elaborating. The language is not only peculiar and strong, but at times knotty and contorted, as by its own impatient strength, while the novelty and struggling crowd of images, acting in conjunction with the difficulties of the style, demands always a greater closeness of attention than poetry, at all events than descriptive poetry, has a right to claim. It not seldom therefore justified the complaint of obscurity. In the following extract I have sometimes fancied that I saw an emblem of the poem itself, and of the author's genius as it was then displayed. Tis storm, and hid in mist from hour to hour. All day the floods a deepening murmur pour. The sky is veiled, and every cheerful sight, dark is the region as with coming night. Yet what a sudden burst of overpowering light, triumphant on the bosom of the storm, Glances the fire-clad eagle's wheeling form, Eastward, in long perspective glittering shine, The wood-crowned cliffs that o'er the lake recline. Those eastern cliffs a hundred streams unfold, At once to pillars turn that flame with gold. Behind his sail the peasant strives to shun The west that burns like one dilated sun, Where in a mighty crucible expire The mountains glowing hot like coals of fire. The poetic psyche, in its process to full development, undergoes as many changes as its Greek namesake, the butterfly, and it is remarkable how soon genius clears and purifies itself from the faults and errors of its earliest products, faults which in its earliest compositions are the more obtrusive and confluent, because as heterogeneous elements, which had only a temporary use, they constitute the very ferment by which themselves are carried off. Or we may compare them to some diseases which must work on the humours, and be thrown out on the surface, in order to secure the patient from their future recurrence. I was in my twenty-fourth year when I had the happiness of knowing Mr. Wordsworth personally, and while memory lasts, I shall hardly forget the sudden effect produced on my mind by his recitation of a manuscript poem which still remains unpublished, but of which the stanza and tone of style were the same as those of the female vagrant, as originally printed in the first volume of the lyrical ballads. There was here no mark of strained thought or forced diction, no crowd or turbulence of imagery, and, as the poet hath himself well described in his lines on revisiting the why, manly reflection and human associations had given both variety and an additional interest to natural objects which in the passion and appetite of the first love they had seemed to him neither to need nor permit the occasional obscurities which had risen from an imperfect control over the resources of his native language had almost wholly disappeared together with that worst defect of arbitrary and illogical phrases at once hackneyed and fantastic which holds so distinguished a place in the technique of ordinary poetry and will more or less alloy the earlier poems of the truest genius unless the attention has been specially directed to their worthlessness and incongruity 
I did not perceive anything particular in the mere style of the poem alluded to during its recitation, except indeed such difference as was not separable from the thought and manner, and the Spenserian stanza which always more or less recalls to the reader's mind Spencer's own style, would doubtless have authorised in my then opinion a more frequent descent to the phrases of ordinary life than could without an ill effect have been hazarded in the heroic couplet. It was not, however, the freedom from false taste, whether as to common defects, or to those more properly his own, which made so unusual an impression on my feelings immediately, and subsequently on my judgment. It was the union of deep feeling with profound thought, the fine balance of truth in observing, with the imaginative faculty in modifying the objects observed, and above all the original gift of spreading the tone, the atmosphere, and with it the depth and height of the ideal world around forms, incidents, and situations, of which, for the common view, custom had bedimmed all the lustre, had dried up the sparkle and the dewdrops. This excellence, which in all Mr. Wordsworth's writings is more or less predominant, and which constitutes the character of his mind, I no sooner felt than I sought to understand. Repeated meditations led me first to suspect, and a more intimate analysis of the human faculties, their appropriate marks, functions, and effects, matured my conjecture into full conviction, that fancy and imagination were two distinct and widely different faculties, instead of being, according to the general belief, either two names with one meaning, or at furthest, the lower and higher degree of one and the same power. It is not, I own, easy to conceive a more apposite translation of the Greek phantasia than the Latin imaginatio, but it is equally true that in all societies there exists an instinct of growth, a certain collective, unconscious good sense working progressively to desynonymize those words originally of the same meaning, which the conflux of dialects applied to the more homogeneous languages, as the Greek and German, and which the same cause, joined with accidents of translation from original works of different countries, occasion in mixed languages like our own. The first and most important point to be proved is, that two conceptions perfectly distinct are confused under one and the same word, and, this done, to appropriate that word exclusively to the one meaning, and the synonym, should there be one, to the other. But if, as will be often the case in the arts and sciences, no synonym exists, we must either invent or borrow a word. In the present instance the appropriation has already begun, and been legitimated in the derivative adjective. Milton had a highly imaginative, Cowley a very fanciful mind. If therefore I should succeed in establishing the actual existence of two faculties generally different, the nomenclature would be at once determined. To the faculty by which I had characterised Milton we should confine the term imagination while the other would be contradistinguished as fancy. Now were it once fully ascertained that this division is no less grounded in nature than that of delirium from mania, or Otway's lutes, laurels, seas of milk, and ships of amber, from Shakespeare's, what, have his daughters brought him to this pass? Or from the preceding apostrophe to the elements, the theory of the fine arts, and of poetry in particular, could not but derive some additional and important light it would in its immediate effects furnish a torch of guidance to the philosophical critic and ultimately to the poet himself in energetic minds truth soon changes by domestication into power and from directing in the discrimination and appraisal of the product becomes influensive in the production to admire on principle is the only way to imitate without loss of originality it has been already hinted that metaphysics and psychology have long been my hobby-horse but to have a hobby-horse, and to be vain of it, are so commonly found together, that they pass almost for the same. I trust, therefore, that there will be more good-humour than contempt, in the smile with which the reader chastises my self-complacency, if I confess myself uncertain whether the satisfaction from the perception of a truth new to myself may not have been rendered more poignant by the conceit that it would be equally so to the public. 
There was a time, certainly, in which I took some little credit to myself, in the belief that I had been the first of my countrymen, who had pointed out the diverse meaning of which the two terms were capable, and analysed the faculties to which they should be appropriated. Mr. W. Taylor's recent volume of synonyms I have not yet seen, but his specification of the terms in question has been clearly shown to be both insufficient and erroneous by Mr. Wordsworth in the preface added to the late collection of his poems. The explanation which Mr. Wordsworth has himself given will be found to differ from mine chiefly, perhaps, as our objects are different. It could scarcely indeed happen otherwise from the advantage I have enjoyed of frequent conversation with him on a subject to which a poem of his own first directed my attention, and my conclusions concerning which he had made more lucid to myself by many happy instances drawn from the operation of natural objects on the mind. But it was Mr. Wordsworth's purpose to consider the influences of fancy and imagination as they are manifested in poetry, and from the different effects to conclude their diversity in kind, while it is my object to investigate the seminal principle, and then from the kind to deduce the degree. My friend has drawn a masterly sketch of the branches with their poetic fruitage. I wish to add the trunk, and even the roots, as far as they lift themselves above ground, and are visible to the naked eye of our common consciousness. Yet even in this attempt I am aware that I shall be obliged to draw more largely on the reader's attention than so immethodical a miscellany as this can authorise, when in such a work, the ecclesiastical polity, of such a mind as Hooker's, the judicious author, though no less admirable for the perspicuity than for the port and dignity of his language, and though he wrote for men of learning in a learned age, saw nevertheless occasion to anticipate and guard against complaints of obscurity, as often as he was to trace his subject to the highest wellspring and fountain. Which, continues he, because men are not accustomed to, the pains we take are more needful a great deal than acceptable, and the matters we handle, seen by reason of newness, till the mind grow better acquainted with them, dark and intricate. I would gladly therefore spare both myself and others this labour, if I knew how without it to present an intelligible statement of my poetic creed, not as my opinions which weigh for nothing, but as deductions from established premises conveyed in such a form as is calculated either to effect a fundamental conviction, or to receive a fundamental confutation. If I may dare once more adopt the words of Hooker, they, unto whom we shall seem tedious, are in no wise injured by us, because it is in their own hands to spare that labour which they are not willing to endure. Those at least, let me be permitted to add, who have taken so much pains to render me ridiculous for a perversion of taste, and have supported the charge by attributing strange notions to me on no other authority than their own conjectures, owe it to themselves as well as to me not to refuse their attention to my own statement of the theory which I do acknowledge, or shrink from the trouble of examining the grounds on which I rest it, or the arguments which I offer in its justification. End of chapter 4